This is Judaism Unbound, episode 13, American Post-Judaism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Levinson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we are here today for the third of three interviews on the topic of Judaism in America, Evolutions, Revolutions, or Something Else. Two weeks ago, we were joined by Professor Jonathan Sarna of Brandeis University. And last week, we spoke with author Anita Diamond. This week, we welcome to the show Professor Shaul Magid, the Jay and Jeannie Schottenstein Chair in Jewish Studies at Indiana University Bloomington and also Professor of Jewish Studies and Religious Studies. Professor Magid is the author of a number of books, but the one we'll be discussing primarily today is got a provocative title. It's called American Post-Judaism, and we're excited to get into this topic. So welcome to the podcast, Professor Magid. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I guess I was wondering, just as we start off, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come to to this book from? Okay, sure. Well, maybe I'll start from where I am and then go backward a little bit. For the last almost 20 years, I've been a, a professor at, at a number of different universities, including rabbinical seminaries at the Jewish Theological Seminary, basically trained as a scholar of, uh, of Jewish thought, focusing on Kabbalah and mysticism, and later kind of branching out to uh, other things, including the topic that we're talking about today in American Judaism. I mean, my, my background is in many ways very much a part of where I ended up. I, I grew up in, um, in the suburbs of New York in the 1960s, early 1970s, and uh, was part of the kind of the last, some of the last embers of the counterculture in the late 60s and early 70s and mid-70s. And after graduating from high school, I um, decided to uh, travel around the country a bit, which I did, and spent some time in New Mexico and other places and became involved in in, um, in macrobiotics and other forms of kind of oriental Asian medicine. And then decided at some point, actually after being given uh, a book called Fragments of the Future Scroll by Zalman Shaka Shalomi, which had just come out a few years before by an acupuncture teacher, decided to travel to Israel. Um, and I traveled to Israel and, you know, did the kind of trip that a lot of people do the first time. Things were a lot freer then. It was still the late 1970s and travel was much easier. And kind of stumbled upon uh, a group of people who were in yeshiva and I kind of fell in with them. And they had this Hasidic rabbi, this kind of very enigmatic Hasidic rabbi that they were all had all gathered around um, named David Din, who lived in New York. And when I went back to the States, I kind of sought him out and very quickly became a part of this Haredi, Baltuva Haredi community, where I actually lived between Borough Park and Jerusalem for about five or six years and became kind of very immersed in kind of the Jewish mystical tradition, studied in Yeshivot in Brooklyn and in Israel for about six years, and um, really in some way felt like that was my place in the world. I had kind of found what I had been looking for. And over the course of a few years, I became more and more disenchanted with that world and disenchanted with the, the dark side that I saw, kind of xenophobia, issues about gender and so on. And I, I slowly made my way out of that world through various portals, one through um, the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and then through the Beit Midrash and Rudei Adut, was the kind of conservative, early conservative um, seminary in Israel and decided that I wanted to do a, a doctorate and, and kind of enter academia, which is something that I really had not thought of at all before that. 
and ended up coming to the States and um, studying with um, Professor Marvin Fox at Brandeis. And I think trying to translate my own dissatisfaction with the Haredi world that I was a part of, but also carrying it very deeply within me. So I wrote a dissertation on Hasidism and then kind of worked in the area of Jewish mysticism for a long time, but then began to kind of see myself also situated very much at the end of the 20th century in the United States, in the diaspora, and try to think about the ways in which the text that I was reading and the world that I was very much a part of could be translated into a, into a more contemporary context. And that kind of brought me to the American post-Judaism project. I was kind of seeing where we were as a people and where we were as a community, as a larger community, not only of Jews, but basically of Americans in the latter part of the 20th century and also Israel. I mean, I, I lived in Israel for 10 years, so I had a very kind of strong ties, complicated relationship with Israel that also has kind of come out in my own more topical writing rather than scholarly writing. And I think that in a way, my own intellectual career has been a kind of continued attempt to try to make sense of my own journey, so to speak. I know it's good to use that word journey, but my own, uh, the, the trajectory that I found myself from, you know, living in a small commune in New Mexico to living in Meisharim in Jerusalem and then everything in between. So I, and I think I continually see myself as trying to make sense of that and, and sharing some of those observations with people who are interested in reading about them. So your book, American Post-Judaism, certainly has an intriguing title. And um, I was wondering if you could sort of give us a basic understanding of what that means and what you really are saying about the situation of American Jews in the 21st century. Sure. I think, in the, you know, the, obviously the, the use of the word post is something that has become very common at the end of the 20th century, postmodernism, postcritical, right? And I think it's very often seen as being a kind of placeholder, meaning it really doesn't, doesn't mean anything. And uh, I, I think that's not true, and that's why I think it's worth using it. And, and here I really uh, learned uh, a lot from Homi Baba and some of the work that he did on culture and trying to try to understand how the, ter how the post-term works. So what I, what I tried to do is to, to look at, and this is very much influenced by Zalman Shafir Shalomi, who really is a kind of the person in this, at the center of the book and his notion of paradigm shift, to say that I saw the world that we were living in as not simply uh, one stage in the evolution of Judaism, but it had experienced what they call in Chabad Hasidism a kvitza, a kind of a leap, a jump. And, you know, Martin Heidegger in his philosophy talks about that too sometimes, it, where, where, things that, where things kind of skip a few steps and we enter into a kind of a different reality in a different realm. So that to call it simply Judaism as if it's part of an evolutionary process is somewhat inaccurate, but it's also not beyond Judaism. And that's why, that, that's why the post kind of speaks to the reality of something called Judaism, but yet not... But that thing can, is no longer the extension of an, of an evolution. And so that's why, that's why I called it American Post-Judaism, because I think that we have actually entered a series of challenges which really take us beyond seeing ourselves as simply a continuation of something that existed in the past. That's not to say that we don't draw from the past and use those rubrics in order to construct something new, but the reality, I think, is a new one. And I think specifically in America, I think America really presents Jews with a series of challenges that 
one could argue at least in the last thousand years, Jews have not experienced. And perhaps the most fundamental one is, what does it mean to construct a Judaism without anti-Semitism? And I don't really deal with anti-Semitism that much in the book, and, and it's not to say that anti-Semitism doesn't exist, because it truly does, but it doesn't really exist here, in the sense that it doesn't exist enough for us to define ourselves in relation to it. And I think that's part of the you know, that's part of the American Jewish challenge at the end of the 20th century. What it would be like to kind of create a vibrant Jewish Renaissance without being defined by the other. So you you used a phrase that I was really interested in expanding upon. You talked about how Judaism is not necessarily an evolutionary process. And one thing Dan and I have been speaking about is this conception that that people seem to have of an ongoing thread of Judaism dating back to Sinai or even to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in essence, Judaism has sort of, maybe it's shifted in one way or another a few times throughout history, but people seem to think that there's this ongoing thread. I'm curious if you can expand on what you mean by the fact that Judaism is not necessarily an evolutionary process. It depends on where, when we're talking about historically. I think there were these the moments of leap. I think the, the classic moment is the destruction of the Second Temple and the way in which uh, what happens after that is not really a continuation of what existed before, but something new. So scholars talk about the, the distinction between ancient Israelite religion and Judaism. It's not really accurate to talk about Judaism during the temp during temple times. It was a religious world that was so different in substance, in context, uh, geographically, contextually, existentially, intellectually, that it is good to make that distinction between ancient Israelite religion and Judaism. And in that sense, I think that Judaism and Christianity are simply two forms of ancient Israelite religion that went down two very different paths. Uh, and I think historically there were moments where that happened. I think the, the expulsion from Spain also is a historical event that really shifted dramatically how Jews saw themselves in the world. Uh, I think the Enlightenment was another example of that. And I think that um, that contemporary America is another example of that. And, and here I think the Holocaust plays actually a very important role because the Holocaust really did not only destroy Jewish civilization in Europe that existed for 1,500 years and not only basically destroyed 6 million souls, it created a kind of seismic shift in Jewish consciousness. And so that in some, in some way, everything that happens after the Holocaust is post-Holocaust. Could you say a little more about what it is that you think in America today has caused this seismic shift? Well, I think at this point what you have is, as a result of the destruction of European Jewry, you have a situation where Jewish civilization, if you want to even use that term, really exists in two major places. It exists in Israel and exists in America. And, they, and Israel and America are two very, very different social settings and demand two very, very different responses from the people, from the Jews who are living there. So I think that one of the things is this kind of, the kind of almost bipolar nature of Jewish civilization in the United States and in Israel. I think the other thing is the way in which American Jews never had to fight for emancipation. That is, the American Jewish experience is not one that really um, is reflected in the Jewish experience of, of, of the last 1,500 years. And the fact that, that notion of acceptance and tolerance and the way in which Jews were able to kind of 
create a sense of self and identity, religious identity and social identity is something that, um, that, that really didn't exist before in the same way. And the other thing, uh, which is really, really the focus of this kind of post-ethnic move is that I think that for most of Jewish history, uh, religion and ethnicity wasn't called ethnicity until after the Second World War, but religion and a sense of essential selfness were very stable. The, the challenge of America, as I see it, is the fact that religion no longer serves the function that it did historically to uh, to to bring the, the collective together, and ethnicity no longer functions that way. That we're living in a world that really doesn't have a very stable ethnic anchor. I think the, the it's not, and it's not only the result of, of of intermarriage, not among Jews and non-Jews only, but among all Americans. I think it's simply that um, people in America are no longer defining themselves primarily by their ethnicity. They may it may be a secondary or a tertiary definition, but. It's not a primary definition. And in a certain way, once religion stopped being the, the, the glue that kept the Jewish collective together and ethnicity served that role, what happens when ethnicity starts to become um, unstable? What happens when it starts to actually become so diffuse that the question of who is a Jew and what is a Jew has to be asked again, not simply in a cursory manner, but actually in a, in a radical manner into its roots. That's that's really interesting, and I'm curious if you can flesh out this notion of post-ethnicity with an anecdote you talked about in your book, and I won't go into it, I'll let you explain it, but you talk about Madeleine Albright, and I think that the way you talk about her is a really helpful way of fleshing out this notion of post-ethnicity. So could you talk to us about that? Yeah, so, you know, the Madeleine Albright piece really comes from an essay that uh, David Hollinger, David Hollinger, who's a historian at Berkeley wrote a book in 1990 or 1991 called Post-Ethnic America. And in that book, basically, he made the claim that the notion of multiculturalism that we seem to think we're operating in has already passed us by. And we're, in, we're entering a period in America where the very notion of ethnicity has become so diffuse for all kinds of reasons that it, we could no longer see ourselves the way we saw ourselves before. For example, you know, John F. Kennedy's uh, Nation of Immigrants, that notion of a cultural mosaic, what they call that in Canada, or cultural pluralism that Horace Kalin talked about in the 1930s, that Mordechai Kaplan kind of adopts. He's basically saying that we're living at the other end of that. And, and, and he, he writes a separate essay about, about Albright. And the interesting thing about Albright is the way in which um, the discovery of her Jewish roots was not necessarily an occasion for her to acknowledge her Jewishness, but rather it was a way for her to acknowledge her Jewish roots without acknowledging her Jewishness. And the description, I think, that, that Hollinger talks about is, he uses the, the notion of ascription, that in a sense, she took upon herself the power to define her own Jewishness and talked about her Jewish roots without talking about, without identifying as being a Jew. Now, one could argue, of course, you know, halakhically, we don't care what Madeleine Albright says. If her mother was a Jew, then she's a Jew. But I think the fact that she responded the way she did really speaks to something that's a little bit more complicated in the ability of the individual to define themselves 
in relationship to their ethnicity. And I think another example of this with, uh, in a different way would be Bernie Sanders, who, who really, I think, is an interesting phenomenon, regardless of his political success or not. I think the fact that Bernie Sanders becomes the first Jewish presidential candidate, and yet he's not the kind of Jew that most Jews hoped would be the first presidential Jewish candidate. In other words, his identity as a Jew is complicated. He identifies ethnically and culturally as a Jew, although he likes to talk about his parents as Polish immigrants rather than Polish Jewish immigrants. Um, he doesn't identify religiously as a Jew. He doesn't identify institutionally as a Jew. And yet his personality, his affect, everything about him is Jewish. So, you know, I think that people are going to start writing about Bernie Sanders in a way that, they, that, that David Hollander was writing about Madeleine Albright. These are interesting American Jewish cases of, uh, of Jewishness that's become much more performative rather than essential. Great. So that gives us a really good lens into how things look now. And we've alluded to why that's different to the past, but I'm curious if we can flesh that out a little bit. And in, in chapter two of your book, you do a little bit of that when you look at three different individuals that embody different relationships to ethnicity, to multiculturalism, etc. And you talk about Felix Adler, Mordechai Kaplan, and Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, um, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan as well. Can can you give our listeners a little bit of a picture of who those three individuals were and why understanding them helps us understand some of the changes in American Judaism over time? Right. Well, um, I, I chose I chose um, Adler and Kaplan particularly for for a number of reasons. First of all, I think that Adler is a, is a forgotten figure, and I think that in many ways the kind of Judaism or in some way post-Judaism that he was advocating because he, he really uh, was a very prominent rabbi. His father was the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, which is the largest, at that point, the, I think the largest reformed synagogue in the United States. And he was kind of um, positioned to take over his father's uh, pulpit. And then after a few years well, after training in Germany and coming back and after a few years, he basically abandons Judaism altogether and sets up this kind of Society for Ethical Culture. And the Society for Ethical Culture was really an attempt to take Reform Judaism to what he considered to be its ultimate and rash and, and, and almost logical conclusion, and that is to universalize Judaism such that it was no longer the religion of the people. Um, well, what I liked about what I liked about Adler was the seriousness which he took, with, with which he took the notion of universalism and the way in which he tried to say that we have to look at Judaism as something that's not limited by an ethnos, by a, by a particular group of people. And yet it offers a, a message that has this almost redemptive quality or prophetic quality of all of the things that people think about when they think about kind of classical reform Judaism and the Hebrew prophets and social justice and so on. So he really kind of basically, it's a universalization of Judaism outside of its ethnos. Kaplan, who was a student of Adler, he was, Adler was his MA advisor when Kaplan was a student at Columbia. And we know that he took at least five courses from Adler and we see that there's a lot of similarities between Adler and Kaplan. He, he, Kaplan actually lifts a lot of his thinking from Adler. For example, Kaplan's famous um, 
abandoning of the notion of divine election is something that Adler wrote about 20 years before Kaplan wrote about it. And there are a number of other things that I talk about in my book that are kind of similarities. The difference was is that Kaplan tried to adopt Adler's universalizing uh, of Judaism and embed it back in an ethnos to basically put it back into the notion of peoplehood. But one that was transformed from a kind of particularistic, exclusive notion of religion that's there simply to serve the Jewish people. And he he created this kind of civilizational idea of Judaism outside of um, the notion of commandment, but yet very, very um, invested in the notion of ritual as that which keeps people together. And here he's drawing from Durkheim. And, and, and Shakta Shalomi comes in because, you know, Shakta Shalomi obviously on the other side of the Holocaust comes in and basically says we have to rethink all of this because, in fact, the very notion of Adler's universalism needs to be rethought, although he never... He never talks about Adler, and in conversations with him, I don't think he really read anything by Felix Adler. But what he's doing is kind of bringing Adler back into the picture by suggesting that um, um, Judaism has to, what, what he would say is Judaism has to go global. It has to see itself as something beyond the religion of a people. It has to see itself as something that can contribute to the rest of society. He's Kaplanian in the sense that he also sees Judaism as functioning within or from a kind of uh, the engine of the Jewish people. But he, he goes beyond Kaplan because he wants to really see the concept of the Jewish community as something that's not necessarily limited to Jews. And that Judaism is a religion that should have permeable boundaries and be able to absorb ideas, practices um, of other religions. So there's a kind of religious syncretism that's endemic to the Shaka Shalomi that really kind of is born from his adaptation of New Age religion, which is something that, of course, didn't exist in Kaplan's time and didn't exist in Adler's time. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about this last piece. You, you mentioned syncretism, and one, one aspect of American Jewish life that we've been talking about in some of our previous episodes is this idea of purity, this idea that ideas that come into Judaism from other sources, be they quote unquote secular sources or other religious sources, this idea that those are somehow inherently less Jewish and and the struggles that come along with that in 21st century Jewish community for those who do want to blend elements of other religions with Judaism or blend secular notions of the world with Judaism. I'm curious if you can talk about how it looks when a person like Reb Zalman blends Judaism with other traditions and why why that particular phenomenon might be important in a post-ethnic world. Right. Well, I think the notion of syncretism is really simply a marker of self-consciousness. Judaism, like all other religions, are being syncretistic all the time. In other words, the boundaries are always permeable, right? So they're constantly moving back and forth, adopting 
amalgamating, absorbing, assimilating ideas from different religions around them, from different peoples around them. So that, that, that's simply, I think that's the nature of human civilization, right? The, uh, the whole notion of kind of opaque borders where there's a community that exists in some kind of an enclave that, doesn't, that isn't influenced from outside, I, I just simply don't accept that as a, as a historical fact. The difference between the, the unconscious adaptation and of of these foreign things and syncretism is that syncretism becomes the openly conscious adaptation of those things, knowingly bringing things in from the outside that um, that they want to be adopted. And I think that I think that one of the things that Reb Zalman was 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 interested in promoting was moving from the unconscious to the conscious. That's to say, if we see Judaism as a world religion, and I think, I think that's a move that he really tried to make. If we see Judaism as a world religion, meaning that it's not simply a religion for an enclave, but it actually has something to contribute to the world around it. Once you open those gates and bring Judaism outside, stuff from the outside has to come inside also. So, you know, in, in that sense, he was a kind of an old-school Houston Smith, uh, we're all serving one God, which I don't particularly, I don't particularly um, feel compelled by, but he had that kind of New Age sense of um, all religions are simply different ways of serving the one God. So that if I, if I, if I bring in... Sufi zikr, if I bring in meditation, if I bring in going to Native American sweat lodges, right, and I basically Judaize them by by kind of enveloping them in Jewish ritual, Jewish liturgy, Jewish practice, I'm just expanding the potential for Jews to be able to relate to this, this, this one power in the universe. We've alluded to this at certain points, but your book takes on the Holocaust in a way that I think is really important. And you talk about Reb Zalman there, but you talk about a number of other Jewish writers who discuss the Holocaust, and they're a little bit unorthodox in their relationship to the Holocaust. And I'm curious if you can expand about how they differ from the kinds of folks that many of us might be more in touch with. I couldn't write the book without writing a Holocaust chapter. And of course, one would think if you're going to write a Holocaust chapter book, there's so many things to talk about in terms of post-Holocaust theology and all of the great, you know, the great people who did so much work in developing post-Holocaust theology. It's not that I don't think that those people are important, but I, what I was trying to say was that there, there are a number of other people for whom the Holocaust plays a primary role in their thinking about Judaism and Jewishness, but who actually don't write about the Holocaust per se. And, and that's what I, was, what I was trying to get at, is that all of contemporary Judaism is a post-Holocaust Judaism. So I picked a number of figures who I thought had fascinating things to say about contemporary America, and in some cases the reception of the Holocaust. I mean, the three people that I think are the, the, worth noting are Mayor Kahana, Jacob Neusner, and, and Reb Zalman, because I think that Neusner, Kahana, and Zalman are in my mind, three of the most influential figures in contemporary Judaism that go completely unnoticed. If you, if you look at what their work is and try to situate their work in a kind of post-war moment and see them, 
see their own work kind of reflected through the Holocaust and refracted through the Holocaust, you can see that in terms of intellectually, in terms of academia, the impact of Musner has been tremendous, not, not only in his work on rabbinic Judaism, but, but the way in which he was able to introduce Jewish studies into the academy and the role that Jewish studies plays in the humanities. He single-handedly really, uh, as far as I can tell, um, did that in the 1970s. He created the study of Judaism in the American Academy of Religion. In terms of um, mindset and politics and identity, I think Kahana's influence is tremendous, not only in Israel, but just as much in America. And, I, and I'm now presently writing a book about Mayor Kahana's critique of American Judaism because I think we don't really see the extent to which his worldview, not his tactics, but his worldview has been adopted by the mainstream Jewish establishment in many, many ways. The other voice here is that, you know, Rev Zalman really never writes about the Holocaust. Very, very few, you know, few small pieces. But I think that his understanding that the Holocaust is really the leap, that's really the paradigm shift. The paradigm shift is not post-war America. The paradigm shift is the Holocaust and the destruction of European Jewry. After that, everything changes. That's really interesting. I mean, I want to, um, I think that I read this in your book, although I apologize if I got it somewhere else, but it was the notion that I've thought about too, that let's say in the transition from Second Temple Judaism to Rabbinic Judaism, the destruction of the Second Temple was not so much the precipitating cause of that paradigm shift. There were already people exploring different ways of being Jewish before that. It was just that the destruction of the Second Temple kind of made that the old way impossible and allowed the other possibilities to start to grow because that other big thing wasn't there anymore. And I'm kind of wondering, is it possible that there are certain things that were going on before the Holocaust that the fact of the Holocaust made more possible to sort of take root because that old version of... Judaism was sort of no longer there in his dominant form. Uh, that's a good question. I, I you know, I, I want to kind of invoke another name here because it's a person who also is not very well known, but I think really serves Zalman as a pre-war precursor, not Hillel Zeitlin in Warsaw, who in, in between the First World War and the Second World War was already trying to create uh, what Zeitlin called a new Yavne, which Shakta Shalomi then basically adopts for his own purposes, much later in his paradigm shift. So I think that you're right in the sense that that the movement was already happening, that there was already a kind of breaking away of a particular old way of doing things. And this is not only in terms of reform and the Enlightenment. I think even within the ultra-Orthodox world, there was that movement. And Cycling is a good example of that. I mean, the Holocaust was just this historical break that made everything else impossible. The main thing that Zalman saw that uh, with the Holocaust was that the Holocaust for him is always coupled with the emergence of the age of Aquarius, which was something that happens obviously much later, the notion of the age of Aquarius that becomes emblematic in New Age religion. So that whereas many people understand the Holocaust as a moment in time that really requires of us as a people to become more protective of ourselves and more insular and more skeptical and more suspicious, 
I think by linking the Holocaust to the age of Aquarius, I think Solomon was saying that the Holocaust is a moment in time that allows us to become more expansive and so to move in the other direction, to become more global, more universalistic, more humanistic, because the, the old insular world before the Holocaust, for reasons obviously beyond comprehension, was wiped away. So I, and one has to be careful, right, because, you know, you're talking about the murder of six million people. So it's it's a it's a sensitive sub- subject to talk about the Holocaust in a utilitarian way, but nonetheless, it is this historical event, and everybody did have to respond to it. And I think that Zalman's response, in a way, becomes the inverse of somebody like Mayor Kahana's response. Mayor Kahana's response to the Holocaust is the Jews have to take charge of their own safety. Right, it becomes a rise in in militantism. I think that Zalman's response is a very different one. Zalman's response is basically to say the Jews have to move outward. They have to take this moment and they have to basically go outside of themselves to offer to offer um, Judaism to the world. While uh, while maintaining themselves as a collective, they have to offer offer Judaism to the world. So it's a very different kind of of response. What you're saying is true in that I think that Zalman would say that things were happening before. Not to say that they were uh, at all connected to the Holocaust, because I think that would be also be somewhat, um, somewhat of a problematic thing to say. But if we want to be able to look honestly at what happened to the Jews in the last century, we have to see that different things were starting to break apart. And the Holocaust simply was this kind of hammer that destroyed that destroyed it completely. Right. I just want to um, ask you one other thing. I hate sort of talking about Mayor Kahana and Reb Zalman in the same sentence, but you said something about Mayor Kahana that intrigued me earlier, where you said that um, it's one thing to look at his analysis and it's another thing to look at his tactics and you can reject his tactics, but think his analysis is interesting. And similarly, it, it, it had me thinking about Reb Zalman's or your kind of description of the state that we're in and why we're there. And then the description of what it might look like to move forward from it. And I'm thinking that there, um, as much as I, for example, as I as an individual really uh, connect with Reb Zalman's point of view about how we've got to where we are, um, there are elements of Jewish renewal that don't speak to me, for example, because I I don't feel that things like prayer and religious activity are, are not necessarily the way that I feel most inspired to explore what it is to be Jewish. And in a sense, uh, when we talk about a new Yavna, I wonder if it's also sort of interesting to think about how there may have been many Yavnas. And actually, you you talked about both Judaism and Christianity being sort of outgrowths of uh, you know Second Temple Judaism, and and you know maybe and there were others, right? And there were and and some of them ended up succeeding, and some of them didn't. And I'm just sort of wondering uh, how you think about the landscape of the Jewish world today in terms of Jewish renewal being one possible direction that things might go, but that there potentially being other experiments and other things that are going on, or if there aren't, how might they be? Um, that's a good question. I think, I think that there are a number of them. I think that 
in the, in this decade, I think we're seeing the kind of leveling off of the influence of Chabad, for example. I think that Chabad obviously was an incredibly important influence in post-war American Judaism. I think you're seeing it leveling off now. I don't think that it, it I don't think that it will continue to have the impact that it had. I think. In terms of the way I the way I see it, the the kind of traditional denominations are starting to um, dissipate slowly. I mean, they'll continue to exist; they're not going to disappear. But they're no longer, I think, the strong ways in which Jews identify. I mean, there are this is this goes back to the Kahana and Shabbat Shalom um, comparison. I think two of the major forces in Jewish identity today are survivalism, which is really kahana, and a kind of spiritual humanism, which I really think is Shakta Shalomi. Now, there are many other things also, but I think that the two things that are new is a certain kind of very militant survivalism and, and the spiritual humanism, which in many ways are opposites, right? Because the survivalism is all about the continuation and maintenance of the self, and the spiritual humanism is really about taking Judaism outside of itself and outside of the Jewish people and offering it to the world while keeping the Jewish people intact as a collective. And the other thing that I think is interesting is, is a kind of non-Orthodox pietism. Right? So you see it in a number of different places in the kind of independent minion movement. The independent minion movement is for me, a kind of non-Orthodox pietism. It's trying to understand halachic Judaism outside of the frameworks of Orthodoxy. That's something else that I think is an, an interesting experiment, which isn't spiritual humanism the way renewal is, but it's trying to rebuild Jewish life and practice outside of the Orthodox paradigm. And I think, you know, there are other, there are other things going on as well. I think the influence of... Uh, of gender and egalitarianism and the way it's functioning within the orthodox world in terms of orthodox women rabbis, which, will, which within the next decade we're probably going which already exists, but will become much more normative in the next decade. But I, I, I still think that from my vantage point, the survivalism and the mystical and the spiritual humanism are really the, the two more interesting things that are going to grow even though they're actually incompatible on some level, they're going to grow in the next decade or two to become one of the, the centerpiece of the, of the American Jewish experience. In the sort of post-ethnic world of America, do you think that there's some kind of role, some kind of possibility for a, let's say, more secular version of Jewish culture to be able to take root? Or do you think that this decreasing ethnic sense of what it is to be Jewish doesn't really leave room for something other than a tribal on the one hand for those who are still feeling powerfully part of the tribe and some kind of spiritual humanism on the other hand for those who have that kind of bent that those are really the only two viable directions that are likely. I, I, I think that's a really good point. I think that the one thing I think that American Jewry is missing is a vibrant Jewish secularism. And I think that if, if that doesn't somehow emerge, and I think it might be emerging in small places. I mean, I think it's emerging in the artistic world. I think it's emerging musically, and it's, it's, it's emerging in terms of the, the new Yiddish movement. It's, it's emerging in terms of kind of art and theater and literature. But if it doesn't really actually gain traction 
as a cultural form, I think that American Jewry is going to uh, be the worst for it. Uh, I mean, one, and one of the reasons is that I think that the secular Jew for whom religion does not speak to them, very, very often this, their secular identity gets swept up in a, current, in a certain kind of survivalism. And I don't think that that's necessarily where they would, they would go if there was another alternative. The question is, first of all, can there be a renewed, a renewed interest in Jewish literacy that's not religious? In other words, a real, a real secularist Jewish education? That's number one. And second of all, if there can't be, can there be some other form of Jewish secularism that can arise that didn't exist before that has a certain access to the tradition but just doesn't have it in as, in as deeply embedded a way? I'll give you an example. A lot of this comes out politically, right? So, you know, the Jewish survivalism comes out in terms of a particular kind of right-leaning Zionism among American secular Jews. I think you're beginning to also see very small numbers of secular Jews on the left, on the left, on the left side of the Israel-Palestine issue. For example, BDS supporters or people who are engaged in protest against the occupation. For many of those people, that becomes their religious identity. Now, it's a strange religious identity because it really doesn't, it's not drawing from anything other than a sense of justice and equality, which is, of course, very, a very strong Jewish value. But it's only now beginning to become rooted slowly in the tradition. But, but I'm interested more in a kind of cultural secularism that can emerge. And um, I don't really see it, but I think it's, 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 it's really necessary. I think, it's, I think from my perspective, it's the one thing that's really missing in the American Jewish experience in the 20th century, to kind of have that kind of secular alternative and option. Because as you say, I mean, something like Jewish renewal, because it has that spiritual component, is really going to be anathema to, to a large number of people for whom religion simply doesn't, doesn't mean anything. I was thinking as you were describing those um, great Jewish cultural figures of the 20th or 19th century, that is it right, right, right now, the ultra-Orthodox population of America is, I think, really the only population, the only Jewish population in America that's growing substantially. And we also know that there's a rather substantial exit from that world. It's just that because of the high birth rate, it, it continues to grow nevertheless. Is it possible that people who are exiting ultra-Orthodoxy in America could be a certain kind of artist, a certain kind of cultural creator for other Jews that have not come out of ultra-Orthodoxy uh, because they do have access to that kind of knowledge? I think it's exactly right. I mean, the the, the, the exit of the ultra-Orthodox um, in America, less so in Israel, but in America, it's an incredible potential, incredible potential. And I think that the real, the real, the real question will be how that potential will be tapped. And will those people, will some of those people, some of them just want to leave and have nothing to do with Jewish world and Jewish life. And that was true of many of the people who left the Yeshivot in Eastern Europe as well. But there are others that really actually have the, the capabilities and the training, at least the training in terms of the Jewish literary tradition, to be able to make an incredible contribution. But there has to be a, a, an alternative for them that, uh, that uses 
what they have and also offers them what they don't have. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a, you know, an ultra-Orthodox, ex-ultra-Orthodox friend who say to me that he thinks in the next decade the Haredi world in America is going to basically collapse. That, yes, it's, it's able to continue because of its high birth rate, but not only are there so many people who are leaving that world, but there are many people who are actually intellectually and spiritually leaving that world, even if they stay in that world. Did you have any any other closing thoughts that you haven't been able to touch on in the rest of our conversation? My hope for the book was basically to start a conversation, to basically say, here is a statement that I think actually holds in terms of where we are as a people today in America. There are many different possibilities and many different alternatives that haven't even been thought of yet in order to deal with the reality of a kind of post-ethnic moment, including trying to do everything to resist it, which has really been in many ways the major uh, the thrust of the, of the American Jewish establishment. And I'm trying to resist that and to say, let, we have to let go of the past. We have to think creatively about the different alternatives and possibilities that exist. I think that Shaka Shalomi offers a series of very interesting, creative, innovative alternatives. His are not, you know, people are not going to agree with that. So my response is, okay, so think of some of your own. But you, you have to actually think forward rather than backward because we don't want to go back to the situation that existed before. We think that we might because it's, we, we're nostalgic for it. But the reality is this is the success of Jews in America and to think creatively about how we can use that success and create from it is something that really is, um, I hope that this book anyway will participate in generating that conversation. I absolutely think you have started that conversation and I've personally, I mean, you talk about some of the public reviews out there about your book and conversations it started. I've also heard from a lot of people that have been provoked to think differently about the Jewish world from your book. So I would say from my experience that that's happening. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. It means a lot to have somebody like you on the show with the level of experience in the Jewish community, both as a practitioner and, of course, as a scholar of Judaism. Well, thank you very much for having me, and and, uh, I wish you all the best. And and it's these kinds of podcasts and these kinds of conversations that will will be used by people who come after us to kind of solve the problems that they face in the future. We hope so. And we'll just close by mentioning, as always, that if you're listening and you have particularly strong thoughts in agreement, disagreement, uh, please, please feel free to voice them in a few places. One is on our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. The other is in our email inboxes at lex at nextjewishfuture.org or at dan at nextjewishfuture.org. We also encourage everyone to go ahead and look at our website, judaismunbound.com, which has show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes. And uh, as one last reminder, this was the third episode in our American Judaism series that we've been calling Evolutions, Revolutions, or Something Else. And we've enjoyed the conversations we've had with our three guests, Jonathan Sarna, Anita Diamond, and today with Shaul Magid. Next week, Dan and I will conclude this four-episode series by putting the pieces together of the three previous episodes, and we hope that you'll join us for that. This has been Judaism Unbound.